Let's pray together. As we've been singing about the fact that we uh, love the Lord, why don't you take a moment and uh, in just the quietness of your heart, tell Him that. Tell Him that you love Him. Tell Him why you love Him. Father, the words of that song are so uh, powerful and meaningful because they echo the words of Scripture. I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplication. Because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call upon Him all the days of my life. Lord, we thank You that compared to the idols of this world, mute idols that cannot speak, deaf idols that cannot hear, blind idols that cannot see. You both hear and see and you speak. And we thank you for that truth. Father, we thank you that nothing in all of creation escapes you. Nothing surprises you. And that there is nothing out of your control that you are absolutely sovereign over every square inch of this universe. And so, Lord, we pray because we know that you're sovereign and we know that the hand of the king is in, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and that you turn it whichever which way you want. And so, Lord, we pray for our nation. Lord, we pray for its leaders. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would move in the hearts of those in leadership who don't know you to bring about policy that honors you and that results in the goodness of God being shown to people in this country and around the world. Lord, we pray for those who do know you, who are in leadership in this country and in this state and in this county. Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage and the strength to stand firm on their convictions. Lord, we know that you have appointed us for such a time as this that we were born here like we're born in this age in this world to be a witness for your son and lord i pray that you would help us to be bold not to shrink back not afraid and not ashamed of the gospel lord we pray that you would help us to be faithful that our lips and our lives would match Lord, that we would live in a way and speak in a way that brings honor to your son Lord we pray for your provision that you would give us everything we need that you give us the words to say and the strength to say it and Lord we pray that we would make an investment in the next generation and that the next generation would rise up and follow you in even a greater way than we do. Lord, help us to stand firm. And Lord, we pray, especially this morning, for the family of one of our brothers and co-laborers, partners in the gospel in India who passed away recently, who had a heart attack during a leadership meeting. God, we pray comfort for his family. That even in the 
middle of this great loss, this hurt, this ache for this mom and these young kids that they would sense the nearness of God. And Lord, we pray that you would meet all of their needs according to your riches and glory that the church would surround them and provide for them. And Lord, we pray that the nations would be glad and sing for joy because the message of the gospel is going forth and they're embracing it. Lord, for our missionaries, for those that we support, especially, Lord, we ask that you would give them boldness, that they would proclaim uh, the light of the world in a dark world. And Lord, we pray even now for our own evangelism team that's knocking on doors, even now asking how they can pray for and serve our community. Lord, I pray that as they open their mouths that you would fill it, that you would fill them with your spirit, with wisdom, with insight. God, that you would give them the words to say and that you would lead them in to divine appointments with people that you're drawing to yourself. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convict these folks of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, and that you would draw them to Jesus. And Lord, we pray now for the preaching, for the hearing, and for the obeying as of your word that you would speak loud and clear far greater than I can in this room this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. All right. Well, hey, good morning. It's good to see y'all this morning. Hey, this morning we're kicking off a, uh, a new sermon series through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and I've titled it Stand Firm. Now, the book of Daniel, which spans about 70 years of the author's life, is really the story of a teenager like someone between probably the ages of 13 and 16 who suddenly found himself in a situation in which he had no control at all. I mean, he had been ripped from the arms of his parents. He had been taken from his homeland by an invading army and dropped into the middle of a pagan and a powerful city that opposed everything he held dear. Like he was planted in this new culture that expected, in fact, it demanded that he conform to their image, that he become one of them. Like this Israelite boy, this Israelite child was taken to Babylon and was taught the ways of Babylon and expected to embrace them and become a good little Babylonian. Like I'm reminded of a quote from Star Trek by Mr. Spock in the original series where he said, In an insane world, a sane man will appear insane. And see, that's what's going on as you open up the book of Daniel. Daniel and his friends that we know by their Aramaic names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, They show up there in Babylon, and the world is absolutely crazy. Up is down, and down is up, and right is wrong, and wrong is right. And they're stuck in the middle of this crazy world, and as a result, everybody thinks they're the crazy ones. Like The the, the culture is saying to, to Daniel, hey, we're not crazy, you're crazy. We're not wrong, you're wrong. 
We're the good people, not you. We are right, and we have everyone on our side. So line up. We won, and you lost, and that's just the way it works. So how, church, do you stand firm? How do you stand firm in your faith in a city and in a country that stands opposed to God and to all that He represents? How, How can you live courageously and confidently as a stranger in a strange land when there is pressure from every direction to conform to the spirit of this age like how do you do it i mean especially as a 13 or 14 year old boy like how do you rise above all of that to be light in a dark world you see the book of daniel answers all of those questions It answers them by giving us some strong theological footing on which we can take our stand. Because the book of Daniel, the theme of the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God in all things. And it helps us to see that if we are ever in a situation where everything has changed, Like if you ever find yourself in a situation where it seems like everything has changed, there is still something, someone, who has not changed. You see, we can stand firm because God stands firm. Come on. I mean, do you believe that? Like we can stand firm in our faith because God stands firm. In Psalm 119, The psalmist writes this, Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. God, it's not temporary. It's not a passing fad. It's not a good idea. Your word is eternal and it stands firm. What you have said, you will do. Every promise of God will come true. Both the good and the bad. For those who reject Christ, they will spend eternity separated from Christ. That's a promise from God. So both the good and the bad. And to the very people, by the way, that who would experience the fall of Jerusalem, the era in which this book is written, and the three deportations to Babylon, the first of which is told in this story, God declares this. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So God, through the prophet Isaiah, tells these would-be captives as they go into deportation, listen, the way you will be able to take your stand is resting on the fact that everything I have said, everything I have promised, I will do. You can stand firm because God stands firm. And so in Daniel 1, we read these words. Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that's 605 B.C., the first deportation, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar. That's modern day Iraq. Really, the city of Babylon is near the city of modern Baghdad. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, something you need to understand is verse 1 tells us exactly what is happening. But verse 2 tells us why it is happening. Like verse 1 tells us that the city of Jerusalem falls, that it's besieged, that the temple vessels are taken. It, that, that the, the, later it'll tell us that the, that the best and the brightest of Jerusalem are taken into captivity in 605. It tells us what is happening, but verse 2 tells us why it is happening. Like verse 1 is the historical context, and verse 2 is the theological context. And so right from the beginning of the book, Daniel wants us to understand that it is the Lord who directs all of history according to the counsel of His will. He says it this way, and the Lord gave. Like Daniel wants us to know that when everything was out of our control, it was not ever for a second out of God's control. It was Yahweh, not Nebuchadnezzar, who was moving the wheel of history to accomplish His purposes and plans. We can stand firm because God stands firm. Verse 3, Then the king, this is Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now Daniel and his friends were in this group. Like, can you imagine the isolation they must have felt as 14 and 15 year olds. Can you imagine how hard it would be? Like they were, this, this was the very last time any of them ever saw their mom and dad. I mean, it was traumatic. And it made them extremely vulnerable, which was actually the purpose because Babylon was seeking to convert them. And so it separates them. Like the world is seeking to convert us right now. Like the world wants you to conform to its image, to line up with its values. And if you just lift your feet and, and let the current of this modern culture carry you where it wants you to be, you will find yourself in a place that you do not recognize. And so... Nebuchadnezzar strips Israel of the best and the brightest, and then he indoctrinates them in the ways of Babylon. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So three years of brainwashing. 
and it was to begin immediately. Along with the finest food and the finest drink from the king's table, these royal rations were intended to kind of create a loyalty to the king, to ingratiate them to their new master. Like they were being treated with honor. Like the king sees something in me. Like he thinks we're important. He thinks that we're significant. Like he sees potential in us. And so they were given a certain stature, all intended to grease the wheels of their compromise. Verse 6, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, likely direct descendants of King Hezekiah. Verse 7, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Like he, he wanted to fully assimilate these men into Babylonian culture. And so their Hebrew names, which honor Yahweh, had to change. I mean, after all, Daniel, his name means Elohim is my judge. Hananiah's name means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael's name means who is like Elohim. And Azariah's name means Yahweh helps. But their new names? Oh no. Their new names were tied to their pagan gods, the gods of Bel and Aku. And so by changing their names, what he intended to do was actually change their identity. Like you're one of us now. Like you need to get on board. Like he wanted to change their language. He wanted to change their literature. He wanted to change their lifestyle. But his ultimate goal was really to change their loyalties. But then in verse 8, we read these words. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Guys, you read that, you have to think, like, where did that come from? I mean, Daniel is... 13 or 14 or 15 or 16 years old. He's just a kid. Like he's in this foreign land where all the expectations are to conform and his mommy and daddy aren't there so he's not going to get in trouble for eating something or drinking something that they don't want him to. Like where does this resolve come from? Like the Hebrew term that is translated resolve It literally means that he set in his heart, which is why the Legacy Standard Bible translates it this way, but Daniel set in his heart that he would not defile himself. In the Hebrew, Veleshem al-Labo. Daniel had set it upon his heart, like he had commanded his heart. Instead of his heart telling him what to do, He tells his heart what to do. Like he assigns it to his heart that he will not defile himself. Daniel, as a teenage boy, away from his family, all alone, vulnerable, stood firm. Like he drew a line in the sand. It was like he was saying, hey, this far and no further. I'm reading your books. I'm learning your language. Like you've changed my name but not this. Like, I can't control what you do. 
but I can control what I do. I can't control what you call me, but I know who I am. Like Daniel knew something that we would all do well to remember. And this is what he knew, that God stands with those who stand firm for Him. God stands with those who stand firm for Him. Like he learned this most likely in his early days as a child growing up in Jerusalem during the religious reforms and the revival brought about by King Josiah, the most righteous of the kings of the southern kingdom. It must have had a profound impact on him, on Shadrach, on Meshach, and on Abednego. And so he tells us, hey, draw a line. Take a stand. Stay your course. Well, draw a line where? Like he knew where because he knew the Scriptures. Guys, that's why we gave you the Dwell app this year. That's why we want you to fill your mind with the truth because we want you to know what God's Word says about everything so that you know where you can take your stand, where you should take your stand. So far this morning, I think 198 of our folks have downloaded the Dwell app. That is really cool. God stands with those who stand firm for Him. Like when we line up our lives with God, God tends to show up. When we line up, God shows up. He stands with those who stand firm for Him. I mean, Martin Luther knew this. In 1521, April 18th, as he stood before both the royal court and the religious court to be condemned for the heresy of saying that the Scripture alone is our authority, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, he was challenged to recant and it would have been so easy for him to say, you know what? I'm going to have to rethink this whole grace thing. You know, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe I was emphasizing it a little too much. Maybe my language was a little too harsh, but he didn't do that. He asked for a day to think about it, and then he came back, and with these words, he took his stand. He says, unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I mean, guys, that is a phrase I would encourage you to memorize. That should be the motto of your life. If you're going to get a great tattoo on your arm, make it those words. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I don't get to decide on these things. Like these are decisions above my pay grade because my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I mean, those were the words of Martin Luther. Are they your words? Is your conscience captive to the Word of God? Where do you draw the line? What are your convictions? In fact, what is the difference between a conviction and something that's simply a preference? I mean, was Daniel just saying, you know what, I'm, 
I'm a vegan, and uh, this food's no good for me, and I'm a teetotaler, so what else you got? Right? That's not what he was saying. Instead, he was saying, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. The Supreme Court actually classifies all religious beliefs into two categories, either preferences or convictions. According to them, a belief is a preference when, under certain circumstances, the belief can be changed. Peer pressure, pressure from your parents, the fear of imprisonment or even death, Like it's a preference if it'll change. Like would you be willing to die for this belief? If not, it's a preference. It's not a conviction. On the other hand, a conviction is a belief that's non-negotiable. It will not change. It's not something that you simply discover. It's something that you set in your heart. See, a preference says, I prefer not to. I'd rather not. But a conviction says, I will never, by the grace of God, I will never, ever, ever do that thing or change my belief on that thing. Like Daniel, guys, was a man of conviction, not a man of preference. Can can I just tell you, my father-in-law, Ed Peckham, is a man of conviction. A man of deep conviction. I remember him sitting down with my sons and my daughter and telling them of his own childhood. And when he was just a little kid growing up in southern Louisiana outside of a five and dime, he saw a man berate his son, speak really ugly to him and disrespectfully, harshly and loud. And at that moment, Ed thought, I will never, ever, ever speak to my son like that. If God gives me a family, I will never, ever speak to my children like that, speak to my wife like that. I would rather die than speak to them that way. And thus began for Ed what he called his no-no list. A list of things that he wrote down, that he remembered, that he said, I would rather die than do this thing. That list carried him through Vietnam and out the other side. And it's added to the man of character and the man of conviction he is today. Where does that come from? Like, what's your no-no list? Like, do you have one? See, people of conviction don't just happen. They are formed. Like you're reading in the book of Daniel. Daniel doesn't just get to a point in Daniel chapter 1 where he says, you know what? I know I've been compromising up to this point, but I think right now I've decided to be a man of strong conviction. No. He started that way. He was taken into captivity that way. Those convictions had been formed over time, taught him by his mom and dad and King Josiah and the high priest. Like, Daniel knew that he couldn't wait until the last moment to make a decision about important and eternal things. He knew that he had to decide before he had to decide. Like, if you wait till the moment, the last moment, the time of pressure, 
you will compromise. And in compromise, you may begin a lifestyle of compromise. But he decided before he had to decide. I I remember uh, going away on a weekend with my son, Bo, my middle child. And I asked him this question. I just gave him a scenario. I said, okay, Bo, you know, he's, you're in, entering the sixth grade. Say you go away. You're, you're at a friend's house at a pool party. The parents are there. You're having a great time. And then the parents go to bed and you're left out there just hanging out. Everything's cool. These are people from church, people from school. And then suddenly somebody breaks out some beer that their dad has and they start passing it around. And before you know it, you have an open beer can in your hand. What do you do? decide right now like don't decide later don't decide in the moment decide right now what you're going to do what kind of person you're going to be and I love Bo's answer he just thought for a second and then he went uh can I tell him that I'm allergic to it (laughs) I love that I said yeah buddy you know what you can. You can tell them you're allergic to it. Like, I love that answer. But guys, you have to decide before you have to decide. Don't wait till the last moment. Like Daniel tells us in this word, don't give in. Don't give in. Like, I love how the NIV study Bible, I'm sorry, the ESV study Bible explains what's going on here in this verse. He says, Daniel and his friends avoided the luxurious diet of the king's table as a way of protecting themselves from being ensnared by the temptations of the Babylonian culture. They used their distinctive diet as a way of retaining their distinctive identity as Jewish exiles and avoiding complete assimilation into the Babylonian culture, which is, of course, the point of everything Nebuchadnezzar is doing. With this restricted diet, they continually reminded themselves in this time of testing that they were the people of God in a foreign land and that they were dependent for their food, indeed for their very lives, upon God their Creator, not King Nebuchadnezzar. Like what choices are you making? What convictions do you have? What line has you, have you drawn in the sand that continually reminds you that you're a son or daughter of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? That this is not your home. That you're a stranger in a strange land. I mean, David, Daniel gave into some non-essentials like language and literature but he drew the line at eating at the king's table because he knew what the king's table symbolized. A transfer of his allegiance. A transfer of his loyalty. Daniel was forced to be in Babylon, but he would not let Babylon into him. He had to live in Babylon, but Babylon would never be his home. Church, This is not your home. Don't get too comfortable. Are you a person of conviction or compromise? Is your conscience captive to the Word of God? Where do you personally draw the line? Can I just tell you where I draw the line? With this simple and ancient declaration, 
This is where I draw the line. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is my line in the sand. I don't concern myself with lofty things. There are decisions that I don't get to vote on. I'm not smart enough, deep enough, wise enough to think about those things. I just know this one thing. Jesus Christ is Lord, and I will remain loyal to Him. He's the one who gets to call the shots for me. I mean, have pity on me. I don't get to decide. I'm a man under authority. I mean, that's just the way it works. Like, I'm going to remain loyal to Christ in my decisions by the grace of God. And so if someone, even if it's someone in our church, tries to change my mind on something that Jesus has established my conviction on, I'm just going to say, why in the world would I ever change my mind for you? I mean, Jesus literally died for me on the cross. He took my sin upon Himself and bore my punishment. He died and He rose again. What the heck have you ever done for me? Like, I will remain loyal to Christ because Jesus Christ is Lord. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, I love this, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Hear this, Daniel wasn't a butthead. Like, he wasn't simply stubborn. He wasn't this kind of guy who just came in there and said, hey, you know what? I'm from the king's royal court. I don't have to eat this slop. Like, what is this? I don't eat this. Like, don't you know I'm vegan? Like, that's what I want. He wasn't that. He wasn't simply stubborn. He was a man of conviction and a man of humility. And in verse 9, it says, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And many of y'all know the rest of the story. The eunuch says, hey, you know what? I can side with you, but it's my head that's going to be cut off. If the king sees you and your three buddies and y'all look weak and wimpy, I'm dead. And so Daniel says, okay, let's just take it, let's just take it one day at a time. Give me 10 days. 10 days to eat vegetables and drink water. And after 10 days, test us and see if we don't look better, healthier than all of these other captives. Like Daniel asked for a test and it's one that he actually puts God to the test because he believes that God will honor his conviction because he knows that God stands with those who stand firm for him. And of course, after 10 days, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego look so much better than the others that the steward changes the diet for all of them. And we read in verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all the literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, all the enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. 
Like these guys have the stuff. See, Daniel teaches don't give in, but he also teaches don't give up. The cool thing about the book of Daniel, and we'll go through the whole book in the next 12 weeks, is that we have the whole life story of Daniel from beginning to end. Like Daniel finished well. He stood firm. We read in the last verse in this chapter, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Like Daniel outlived Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, Daniel outlived the entire Babylonian empire. He lived until the days of Cyrus. See, the truth is that the servants of God, those who stand firm, will always out-endure the kingdoms of this age. Daniel, as the LSB puts it, I love this, and Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. He continued. He had a pattern for living. Don't give up. Don't give in. And he continued. He didn't give up. He didn't give in. He didn't wear out. Wouldn't you love that to be said of you? Like, Wouldn't you love to be able to say at 75, at 80, I have remained faithful by the grace of God. I finished my race. I've kept the faith. Now, if we ended right there, can I just tell you, if we ended right there, the hero of this story would appear to be Daniel. But that's not the way Daniel tells his own story. Like if I were writing my own story, if you were writing your own story, you would be the hero of that story, right? I mean, Daniel is writing his own story here. He doesn't make himself the hero of his story. God is the hero, clearly, of Daniel's story. I love how Dr. Brian Chappell puts it. He explains it this way. He says, if Daniel would risk position, privilege, and life itself for a pure relationship with his God, then that must be quite a relationship. And that must be quite a God. You see, Yahweh was the hero of Daniel's story three times in this passage. Daniel points to the hero of his story. In verse 2, he says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's wisdom and strength and power that defeated Israel. It was God Himself. God's the one who gave him into his hand. Verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. I mean, Daniel, as a teenager, takes his stand like he could have been killed. Instead, God gives him favor and compassion. And then verse 17, at the end of the test, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and gives Daniel himself the power to interpret dreams and vision. See, what Daniel is saying here is you can stand firm. Because God stands firm. You don't have to give up. You don't have to give in. You see, in their captivity, God was doing something. God was doing something for Israel, and God was even doing something for Babylon that even Daniel couldn't imagine. Like in their captivity, God was carrying the message of Yahweh, 
The message of the one true God. The message of hope and love to a pagan land. God had sovereignly orchestrated the captivity to put His glory on display among the nations so that they might be drawn to Him. Like I love how uh, Dale Davis puts it. He says, sometimes God will allow hardship to reach us because He wants His mercy to reach beyond us. And so just to give you a picture of what God did through the faithfulness of Daniel a few centuries later, when the Magi came from this very same region to Bethlehem to worship the newborn king of the Jews. It was li- they were likely there because their forefathers had heard of the coming Messiah from Daniel. And they had passed it down through the generations. God had sovereignly orchestrated that so that those kings from the east, those wise men, would bring their gifts to the newborn king and bow. Follow that star and then bow in worship of him. See, a God, the God we have, has sovereignly orchestrated that each one of you live right here, right now, for such a time as this, so that like that star over the manger, we can point people to the very same King. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that uh, as crazy as the world gets, as unhinged as it is, where right is wrong and wrong is right and up is down, we know that You are in absolute sovereign control and that Your purposes will stand. We thank You that in Your sovereignty, You appointed a light in the heavens to point wise men from the east to come to Bethlehem. And you have appointed us in your sovereignty to point to your son as well. And Lord, along with that, you've given us this table. We come to it every week as a church. And this table preaches to us about the Messiah. Born in a lowly stable. Living a perfect life. And then being crucified and on the cross beyond the physical torment. The sins of the world were placed on Him and He experienced cosmic separation from His Father. He bore Your wrath for our sin. He died and He rose again. Lord, we thank You that this table preaches that Gospel to us. Prepare our hearts for it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd ask that y'all stand with me. As the band plays, I'd encourage you to come down and get your elements of communion. Take them back to your seat and we'll take them together as a church family. On New Year's Eve, I was finishing up the book of Revelation. And it struck me how It ends in a garden with a tree of life planted there for the healing of the nations. 
Like we're back to the beginning and it's even better because the Lamb is there. And He's the light. Guys, that's because God keeps all of His promises. All of His promises. I love you, Lord, because your mercies never fail. This is His body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Him. And Lord, I love your voice because it's brought me through the fire. This is His blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of Him. Let's worship together. Amen. You know, all of us uh, have a decision to make. And we have to decide before we have to decide. Not in the moment, not in a time of pressure or emotion, but right here and right now, will you dine at King Nebuchadnezzar's table? Or will you dine with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Now, Jesus himself says in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens, I will come in to him and I will dine with him and he with me. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, to dine with someone was seen as fellowship, as communion, as relationship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Decide before you have to decide. We're going to have elders and their wives down front. If you have any questions about like how all this works, if you're not a believer yet, but you want to follow Christ, we'd love to talk to you. We have all the time in the world. Like we'd love to talk to you about those kind of decisions that are so eternally important. I'm going to ask you all to sit just for a brief moment. They're going to bring the lights up because we're going to end this morning with a little church business. Uh, this is for the members of Hutto Bible Church. Those who have gone through the membership class and committed and you're an adult, you're 18 or above. Uh, we are an elder-led church, and that just means that I'm not the CEO of Hutto Bible Church. I'm not the president. I am the teaching pastor, the directional leader, but I am one among many elders in this church who kind of govern and steer it. And so I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful to serve with godly men, and uh, we appoint elders usually for a three-year period. And so this morning, we're bringing three candidates to you. Uh, these are men that have kind of gone through uh, some leadership development. They've gone through an interview, a couple interviews with our elder team, and our elders have presented them, believing that God's leading us to appoint them and wanting your confirmation this morning. These are not three guys that are running against each other, right? We're, we're appointing all three of these. I want to introduce them to you. They're right over here. Here's uh, Ryan Fouts. Yeah, many of y'all know Ryan. Uh, Jason Hatton, all right, and uh, Greg Stanton, one of our founding members of our church. And so uh, we're presenting them to you for you to appoint uh, them by just checking first that you're a member and then checking on each of those boxes as God leads you. Y'all can be seated. Uh, we're appointing Greg and Jason 
for a three-year term. And if you wonder about Ryan's one-year term, it's not that we don't trust him. It's just that we hope that he will be one of the founding elders of Taylor Bible Church. And so uh, that's why he has a one-year term. And so uh, go ahead and, and vote. After you vote, if you could fold it in half and pass it to the center, uh, y'all on the end can pass it to the center as well. Our ushers will pick that up and then our elders will count and we'll let you know next week. As we close, I want to invite two of my staff members to, to come forward. I want to introduce you to uh, Jared Cook and uh, Jess Darrow. Uh, if y'all don't already know them. Uh, all right, come on, yeah. Jess has been with us for about a year, uh, and she has done an amazing job, and we're presenting her to you this morning. Yeah, yeah, you get one fan. Just one. That's all you got. Uh, but we're presenting her now as a full-time staff member beginning February 1. She's going on staff full-time, and so we're so thankful uh, that Jess has brought her gifts uh, to serve this body, and uh, she's one of our administrative assistants. Uh, Jared, uh, he started last Sunday, uh, and he is now our, our new uh, student ministry resident, and so he's helping lead our youth ministry, kind of learning the ropes, and he's from, he's been a youth ministry intern in the past and been serving at Parkway Bible Church, also known as Hill Country Bible Church of Pflugerville, and so we're blessed to have him and looking forward to a long relationship together. So afterwards, you feel free to, to greet them. I'm going to pray over them, and then we're going to be dismissed. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jess, and thank you for Jared. Uh, God, for their heart for you and their heart to serve your bride. Uh, God, the skills and gifts that you've given them, Lord, I pray that you would fill them with your spirit and give them everything they need to accomplish your purpose and what you're calling them to here at Huddle Bible Church. Bless them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.